my thing is taking on the wars themselves and the reasons for them that no actually you don't need to stand on that wall you're facing the wrong way and you don't know what you're talking about what would he care this this plan was never about him eventually becoming the king of Saudi Arabia or something like that he was trying to kick off an era of permanent war and this is exactly what he got Welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Levitt, and I couldn't be more happy to have on the show today Mr. Scott Horton. Uh, Scott is the director of the Libertarian Institute, and he's the editorial director of antiwar.com. Um, he's host of the Antiwar Radio on Pacifica in Los Angeles, uh, and he podcasts the Scott Horton Show, very popular uh, podcast from scotthorton.org that's scott s-c-o-t-t-h-o-r-t-o-n.org he's the author of the 2021 book enough already time to end the war on terrorism the 2017 book fool's errand the end uh time to end the war in afghanistan and the editor of the 2019 book the great ron paul the scott horton show interviews 2004 to 2019 and uh what is very uh uh, I, I'm blown away by as he's conducted more than 5,000 interviews um, since 2003. And as a guy just getting started doing this, Scott, I got to tell you, are you, are you like the Larry King of the Liberty Movement? <laughs> That's a funny way to say it. Yeah, I guess something like that. Something like that. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being on, man. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you very much for having me. My my pleasure. Um, so first, a little bit about you, Scott. I mean, you're just a, you're an interesting guy. I, I was turned on to you, um, listening to you by I think I think this is he's like the gateway drug to all to the liberty movement, the Tom Woods show. Um, and then I I heard you again on uh, the uh, the Mises podcast a week ago, and and you're just an interesting guy. I, I, and I'd love to hear more about your story. Where where are you from, and 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 how did how did the anti war movement movement become really it seems like the passion of your life? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, uh, I'm not really that interesting. I'm just a skater kid from Austin, and you know, libertarian, anti government extremist type. All right, and um, I um. I guess, you know, uh, part Star Wars, part Thomas Jefferson, part uh, a very young and early understanding that Ronald Reagan was the biggest cocaine dealer in America at the same time that he was the biggest jailer of cocaine users in America. Uh, the Waco massacre under Bill Clinton. And then, of course, the uh, supposed revenge, the Oklahoma City bombing and the massive cover up behind that and letting all the guys go responsible for that and then uh i was very heavily influenced by i mean that was well and also i'm a skateboarder as i mentioned so i've hated cops since i was 11 and always will uh that's just part of you know that's part in, of the, in the deal 1980s, it's different now in the 1980s when i was a boy being a skateboarder was really an outlaw kind of a thing and oh that was so punk we, rock man we attracted a lot of negative kind of attention and reaction so you know that's part of it um and then you know, in, um, I guess, you know, I'll give credit to like the John Birchers too. William Norman Grigg was, um, you know, the, he was always the very best thing that ever happened to the John Birch society. Um, he wasn't really that much of a right winger. 
um, and his conspiracy theory stuff about the New World Order was always, even though it was ultimately not the right model for everything, it was always the smartest take along those lines. And, and the details, at least, you know, were always really right on. So it was important to me, you know, not that I was a right winger, but it was just important to me to see very, you know, hardcore anti-war takes from the right. Because, you know, of course, the common narrative is that, yeah, well, liberals and leftists and progressives and hippies, they're against war, but they're no good in a fight anyway. So who cares? You know, um, but right wingers know that you got to be tough and strong and fight for your country and defend freedom against the evil enemy and all these kinds of things. So if there are right wingers who are saying that what we're doing in our foreign policy is wrong, then it's at least worth looking at, right? And and what I found in my experience then was the right-wingers who were against American imperialism, you know, yes, they were America firsters. They were most concerned about what effect this was having on our country compared to maybe, you know, more left types would be more concerned about civilian casualties in foreign countries and stuff like that. But their analysis was right on that the world empire is bad for us. It... Right. Um, you know, it stretches our country thin. It runs up the debt. It, um, you know, degrades our military and, you know, exhausts our infantry for in case they actually have a real fight to get in. And, you know, that it causes all this dissension at home and it disrupts our society. It's, you know, our the world empire itself is like one big Vietnam war that we should not be fighting because of all of the negative consequences for our own country at home. And now, the New World Order take was that this is all an Illuminati conspiracy because at the end, when America falls, then the real world government will come. Well, that's not really right, but it doesn't matter, right? The point is that they're still right, that empires fall. It's not all limited constitutional republics fall. It's all empires fall because right. it's murder-suicide is what it is. Trying to take over the world is uh, uh, from the middle part of North America trying to be the dominant force in all of the rest of the old world. It's an equation for bankruptcy and suicide. It's a, it's, um, it's self-destructive in every kind of way. And then, so, um, I was, as I said, I was really, uh, influenced by Ron Paul and by Harry Brown, who was a really top quality libertarian party candidate who ran in 1996 and 2000. And he was the kind of guy who really knew everything in the world. Uh, he was writing a history book called The War Racket when he died in 2004. Um, or uh, maybe it was 06, I'm sorry. But anyway, um, you know, he was really great, really, you know, a Ron Paul level, heroic, you know, classy guy, decent guy, and absolutely knowledgeable, not just about every part of libertarianism, but the world that he was living into. And, uh, so he really also set a great example. And then, uh, you know, um, I guess it was in 1999 during Kosovo was when my friend, uh, Shauna first showed me antiwar.com. And when I learned that antiwar.com was owned by libertarians and not leftists, I was, was really excited. And I saw that they ran Ron Paul, they ran Pat Buchanan. And they also ran leftists and liberals like Norman Solomon and Daniel Ellsberg and whoever you got, as long as they're sound on war. So here's libertarians 
who are not writing, not running a site about libertarianism, but running a site about non-interventionism and where they're totally open to running, you know, for your older listeners, they'll understand the joke, right? The, these two former nemeses, Daniel Ellsberg and Pat Buchanan next to each other on the same day. Ellsberg's the guy that told the truth about the Vietnam War and helped end it, and Pat Buchanan worked for Nixon at the time. And absolutely, the great unifier, the <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I said the great unifier, antiwar.com. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, and led by libertarians. So this isn't like you know the the war party likes to cry about oh the red brown alliance as though these are all you know communists and fascist totalitarians coming together what to create a more totalitarian society than we've already got no absolutely not that's not what's going on here it is socialists and conservatives and nationalist uh paleoconservatives like pat buchanan but the alliance is to try to stop our government from doing horrible fascist things horrible totalitarian things passing all these new laws and degrading our liberty and waging these foreign wars and all that it really is a libertarian minded and centered movement in a way, right? It's trying to stop our government from doing the very worst thing that it's doing. And then the real key was Justin Raimondo because he's now dead. He died in 2019, but he was the head writer. He was the editorial director, which is now my job at antiwar.com. And he was the head writer and he wrote three times a week. And there's just no question in my mind that in the George W. Bush years, he was the most important writer in America, period, wow. by 10 places above the next guy. And, you know, in Obama times, also, you know, very good. Um, and in the, in the, toward the end of the Obama years, he started getting older and not trying as hard. But around the time of September 11th and the run up to Iraq War II, he was the most important writer in America, and he blew all my old conspiracy theorist guys that I used to read out of the water. He just knew so much more about what was going on, and this wasn't any one world UN agenda kind of thing. That's not what it was. It was the neoconservatives in service of the Israelis lying us into war against their greatest enemy, Iraq, who they considered to be at least their greatest strategic rival, the Iraqis. And so... Um, once I started reading Ramondo, I grew out of my New World Order stuff pretty quick and and recognized that, you know, the real model here. See, there's something to that, right? All that liberal namby-pamby global governance and baby blue UN flags and all these kinds of things is. OK, so if you're like a right wing critic of this stuff, then right. you think that's what's the real agenda. Right. And that, OK, Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush and Donald Trump. Well, forget Trump. He's a different issue. But Ronald Reagan and W. Bush, they have to pretend to be conservatives and nationalists and patriots and Americans. But ultimately, they're furthering this more leftist, globalist U.N. world order plot. Um, when actually, I think the truth is much more the other way around, that the reality is that this is Ronald Reagan's and George W. Bush's foreign policy. And that the democratic policy, you know, and, and emphasis on what they call global governance and cooperation and multilateralism and all, you know, kind of the shibboleths of what they call the liberal world order and all of that, that that's mostly the ruse. That's mostly the shell game to get liberals and Democrats who typically don't feel very militaristic 
on board for war in the name of helping people. And so, yes, we have to go. How can you oppose saving the Libyans in this crisis? Right. Or creating democracy in, in Iraq. Or That's right. And so it's always a little bit of both because you have liars and true believers on both sides. But I think that the Bush, the W. Bush years really taught me that these guys are not pursuing a world government. The only reason they went to the U.N. at all was because Tony Blair and Colin Powell were afraid that they would go to prison if they didn't go to the U.N. to try to get authorization for the war, because that's the law. But it wasn't true that Bush said, hey, listen, we're just trying to build up the credibility of the United Nations so that its word is law, which is supposed to be. The thing. He didn't really mean that. That was and it was enough to get some guys from the New Republic on board. Right. It was enough to, to work on the liberals to throw in some of that. But um, anyway, so that's essentially, um, you know, the background of, of who I am and where I come from in that. I'm a, I'm a Ron Paul libertarian and an anti-government extremist type and, um, you know, very influenced by the, uh, the Rothbardian take on foreign yeah. policy, which is the Ramondo take was right. really – uh, what he got from Murray Rothbard. And if I had only known about Murray Rothbard in the 90s, I would have been with those guys all along. I never really was a right winger or a left winger. I was always a libertarian um, in that kind of Harry Brown and Ron Paul type sense. But I just didn't know about Rothbard. I, I wasn't on the internet and all of that stuff. I didn't really start reading antiwar.com and lewrockwell.com and all those things regularly until 2002. Well, so, it's so interesting when I when I talk to people like old school guys, they're they're like saying they'll, they'll say, you know, I'm a real conservative. And and a lot of times I didn't understand what that meant. And I think it really did mean that kind of um, true libertarian, uh, very minimalist foreign policy, um, you know, and, and not trying to get ourselves entangled in foreign affairs kind of guys. And and, um, you know, it, and I like you, I man who is Rothbard, right? You know, <laughs> you know, that's a, that, that's, that's, that, that's 10 years ago. That's, that's a name that didn't mean anything to me. Um, and it, it's fascinating how we come around to, to these different positions that we, that we find ourselves. Yeah. Right. Um, in fact, it just came up the other day cause all this stuff going on on wall street. I said, well, hell, as long as everybody's talking about wall street, here's wall street banks and American foreign policy by Murray Rothbard. <laughs> right. Cause that's my thing. And, What's great about that, that was one of the first things I read by Rothbard. I don't remember who sent it to me or something, but that's how I knew I was home because what that little monograph is, again, Wall Street banks and American foreign policy, it is just like the Birchers. It's the conspiracy theory history of the 20th century. And it's not all Freemasons and Illuminati and Skull and Bones, though, but it is all about the Morgans and the Rockefellers. And their corporations and the centers of political power around them, which is just what the Birchers said, was correct, right? It was the Morgan right. set ruled the establishment until about the first third of World War II when the Rockefellers became the more dominant faction and all of that. But these were the guys who got us into World War I and World War II and built the American world empire. And, and Rothbard called it the Rockefeller world empire. And so, but the point being is that here was a history that was a lot like the John Birch Society history of the conspiracies and the behind the scenes and the corruption of 20th century foreign policy. But it was written by this brilliant genius libertarian who was not subject to the 
you know, goofier conspiracy theory stuff mm -hmm. that was, you know, not really derived from the story, but was right. sort of like kind of imposed on top of it. He rejected all that. He was way too smart for all the kind of right wing. B and that was the other thing is he's not a right winger. So the Birchers were always like, oh, red China and all this stuff. But Rothbard wasn't like that. And of course, he's obviously he's the living antithesis of Mao Zedong uh, to the absolute nth degree. Um, and yet that's no reason to support a Cold War against them. Don't be foolish. Right. Like here's a guy who knows better than everything. He knows better than every wrong thing that everybody's bad on. And he's just got it together. And so when I read that Wall Street banks and American foreign policy and he wrote it in like 78 or whatever, right? It only goes so far. I don't even think. Right. Maybe. No, no, no. He wrote it like 82. I think he gets just barely into early Reagan in there. Um, okay. Possibly. But that's how I knew like, yes. So this is everything that I already knew only told better than I've ever read it before by a guy who doesn't get any of the things wrong that the other guys get wrong and who gets even more right than that. And yeah, that's it. Yeah, you know, I mean, he was. So, he's yeah, that was my thinker. first real introduction to Rothbardian libertarianism, which is a pretty lucky first shot. No kidding. That's. I mean, that's that's great. Um, and, and I want to ask you just a quick question, and maybe this is a, a what a distinction that that isn't one. Um, I mean, I noticed that we talk about anti-war and and anti-war.com. Do you see a difference between the anti-war movement and the peace movement? Is there not a difference? Is that just you know? Um, or do you see that as a, as a difference? No, I think essentially it's the same, the same term. I think liberals and leftists tend to emphasize peace in a way where maybe libertarians and right-wingers tend to just say anti-war. I mean, from my own point of view, I think that, well, like, for example, people have criticized uh, the name of my show on, on KPFK in Los Angeles as anti-war radio. It should be pro-peace radio. Uh -huh. And I, yeah, no, nah, you know what? You do pro-peace radio. I'm going to do anti-war radio. <laughs> right. And I'm against the war. thing that's wrong. Because I feel like, I mean, there's plenty of uh, great stuff to say, right? You could fill an hour show every week, no problem, with reasons for peace. But just on the surface, in a, on a book by its cover kind of a way, it sounds hopeful and naive and foolish and weak. Oh, peace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One day everything will be fine in utopia that never comes, dummy. But here in the real world, there are always conflicts and tough guys got to be ready to stand on that wall and fight. And all of these things that make, from the point of view of the people who believe them, they make every pro-peace argument obsolete, right? It makes them moot. So my thing is taking on the wars themselves and the reasons for them that no, actually, you don't need to stand on that wall. You're facing the wrong way and you don't know what you're talking about. And this isn't right. And just beat them on the facts. And I know? think that's and, and let that's hopefulness be somebody else's narrative. I'm not going for that. I'm going for this is a lie and you're a fool if you believe it. Well, and I think that's a huge point. And and to get into your your book enough already, I think. Um, by the way, I love the title. I think it's perfect. And and you have a. Um, I just want to say a quick quote that that you have in here. It's uh, you say the problem is that our government is ignoring and misrepresenting the real causes of the terrorist war against the United States. It has been exploit. It uh, it has then exploited the population's ignorance and. 
and fear to advance their own unrelated and counterproductive political agendas. And to me, that stuck out because that's really like the 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 hook of of. Let me put it from my perspective. I remember when when Ron Paul was running for uh, president, and and he'd be the only guy. Um, you know, in these debates, I would say, you know, maybe we shouldn't have had this war. Maybe, maybe this wasn't a great idea. Maybe, um, maybe we should bring our, our troops home. And, and that was like, I, in fact, I remember Dennis Prager on his radio show would say, man, I love Ron Paul. He's the greatest, except for his foreign policy is a complete mess. It's like, it's a joke. It's, it's, it's unrealistic and it's crazy. And I think one of the things you're saying is, no, we just don't really know what is actually going on. We have been fooled for a very long time. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think Dennis Prager knows better and is dishonest because he's a Zionist and he puts Israel first and that necessitates America's foreign policy concerns, the national interest of the American people taking a back seat. And there's just no way to argue around it. It's as simple as this. Israel hates the Shiites more. Iran, and now because of America listening to the Israelis counterproductively, including the government in Baghdad and their allies in Damascus, Syria, and Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And that's Israel's real problem, Hezbollah. Iran arms Hezbollah by way of Syria. Well, what has that got to do with us? Nothing, nothing, except that America is fighting on Israel's side of the terror war when our enemies are the radical bin Ladenite uh, Saudis and Egyptians on the Sunni side of the ledger. And if we have an ally, and I'm not saying we should be fighting this terror war at all or that we should have an ally, but just to draw the distinction here. Right. If we have allies in the fight, it's the Shiites. That's who wants to destroy the bin Ladenites. It's Iran and their allies. And yet, if you listen to the Zionists like Dennis Prager, they will constantly try to mislead you and say, Iran is the greatest state sponsor of terrorism. And they say that over and over and over again. And then they start talking about Al Qaeda. And sometimes they'll be so bold as to lie. I don't know about Prager himself, although I wouldn't doubt it. Um, but uh, occasionally they'll go so far as to lie and pretend to believe that Iran backs Al Qaeda and that the Al Qaeda guys in Iran aren't on house arrest and, you know, for use as future bargaining chips or anything like that. No, no, no. Iran is behind the whole project. They pretended to believe that about Saddam Hussein, too. They're lying. They're lying. Dennis Prager is a liar. Dennis Prager knows that bin Laden and his men were part of Ronald Reagan's policy in the 1980s, begun by Jimmy Carter. I'm no partisan. Carter and Reagan backed these guys, worked with Saudi Arabia and Pakistan to support the Azam group, the Arab Afghan army, to go and fight against the godless Soviet communists in Afghanistan in the 1980s. And he probably knows that at Israel's not even request, but demand, Bill Clinton continued the H.W. Bush policy of leaving our troops, our combat forces in bases, permanent bases in Saudi Arabia in order to enforce the Israeli policy of dual containment since uh, Saddam Hussein, after Iraq War I, was too weak to contain Iran. 
the Israelis insisted that America had to stay in Saudi Arabia to contain Iran and Iraq both. Since we can't play them off each other anymore, since one is so much more powerful than the other now, after we turned on the guy that we backed in the last war, in the Iran-Iraq war, America was on Saddam's side 95% of the time, while the Israelis backed the Iranians, by the way. Um, but then they insisted that, well, now that Iraq is too weak after Iraq War One to contain Iran, now America has to stay in bases in Saudi. And that's what caused Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan's heroic freedom fighters, the Al-Qaeda terrorists, to turn against the United States and attack us. It wasn't just American foreign policies, but it was American foreign policies that were by and large at the insistence of the Israelis. And not just that, but our outright support for Israel as well. You think Dennis Prager would ever admit to you that the reason some Egyptian engineering students volunteered to go work for this Saudi exile to attack Americans in New York was because of what Israel was doing to the Lebanese? Likely not. Of course not. Right. Israel invaded southern Lebanon and they were butchering women and children. And bin Laden said that he's declaring war on the United States in part because of American support for Israel, not being a nice little Jewish boy minding their own business, but for committing crimes against humanity. And as bin Laden said in his 1996 declaration of war, we will never forget the pictures of the arms and heads of the young children severed from their bodies. He didn't say, I'm going to convert your daughter to my stupid religion or anything like that. He said, I'm getting revenge against you for what you did to me. And that little kid was me, get it? And that was why some Egyptian engineering students studying in Germany decided to travel to Afghanistan to volunteer for his fight. They were the men who crashed the planes into the towers on September 11th. Mohammed Atta and his friends. It wasn't Islamic extremism. It was political extremism. It wasn't based on the doctrines of the Quran and the Hadiths. It was based on a feeling of revenge against the people they held responsible for the acts of violence against the people that they identified with. And this is no different than the Americans from all 50 states, Christians, Jews, and Muslims, who went to join the U.S. Army to go and fight the enemies of our country after they attacked us on September 11th. Right. It's the exact same thing. It doesn't justify al-Qaeda attacking and killing innocent civilians any more than it justify, their attack justifies George W. Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump killing upwards of two million innocent people who had nothing whatsoever to do with it in the time since then. Or well, the hundreds of thousands of people that George W. Bush, uh, George H. W. Bush and Bill Clinton had killed in the time leading up to that attack. And Prager can never tell you any of this because Prager's loyalty is to the foreign nation state of Israel. That I think I think this is what, what you're talking about is one of the reasons why so many Americans feel so much cognitive uh, dissonance when it comes to foreign affairs. Like, who is our enemy? Who are we fighting? Why are we fighting them? There, we, it, we don't know. You know, one one week it seems you know um, 
you know, Saudis are cutting off heads and they're our enemy. And, and, and the next week, you know, they're, we're, we're literally giving them money and, 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 um, kowtowing to every, everything they, they want. Um, you know, one, one week that we're, we're fighting, um, you know, uh, uh, we're fighting for Iraq and the next week we're fighting against them. It, it, it seems so con it, it, what it ends up being, I think for a lot of people and, and to, make it black and white or to make it as stark as I can, it almost becomes, Hey, those people over there, they're Brown people and not to make it racist, but frankly, they're Brown people over there. They're the bad guys, you know? And that, I think a lot of people just get so sick of trying to, trying to understand what, um, you know, what are we doing? What are we fighting for that? Everything else becomes just, just blah. Right. Um, well, listen, I mean, I think that's right. That's why I wrote the book is because it is a complicated mess, but I, I think it's easy enough to understand if people want to understand it. And I wrote it, Mike, not just for you who wants to really know this stuff, but I wrote it in the hopes that when you're done reading it, that you will think that I could give this to my uncle Bob, my right wing uncle Bob. Right. I, I could give this to my minister who every Sunday makes us stand up and salute the troops and all of this crap, all this just mindless jingoist garbage with no substance to it. Just this, all the ceremony and symbolism behind American militarism and just show them that, you know what, you don't have to believe in this stuff. You know, that's what George Carlin, I'm sorry I left George Carlin off the list when he asked me about me earlier. He was another huge influence on me. And in fact, right after Iraq war one, it was one year after Iraq war one, that Carlin put out Jammin' in New York, which he always said was his favorite special he ever did. And I agree, it's absolutely his most powerful work. And the whole first part is about Iraq War I. And to sum it up, you're an idiot if you believe in this stuff. You're not stupid, are you? Well then, okay. And George Carlin, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know how old you are, you know, the role he plays in your world. To me, this is the wisest elder in America talking. This is a guy who, if he tells you that you don't have to believe in these wars, you don't believe a thing the Pentagon says, you believe a war the Pentagon says? Let right. me tell you something, kid. That's not how it works, all right? That kind of talk coming from a guy like George Carlin, that's it. It's the ultimate inoculation. You don't have to believe in things Republicans say, and you don't have to believe in things Democrats say. You know who's out to get you? All of them. You know who knows what the truth is? Not them. Yeah. You know who respects your life? Not them. So why would you defer to them when they're your enemies? Okay, now some more jokes about goofy shit. No, exactly. And Boom. So now how can you ever believe them again? How can right. you ever believe them again? How, do you, how can you even feel the pressure to believe? Yeah. Right? And so I'm trying to do that in my own way, right? I want this book, I want you and your Uncle Bob and whoever, when they're done with this book, to be able to say to their friends, hey, look, there's this new book out that says it, it just doesn't have to be this way and we don't have to do this anymore. We never really did in the first place. And actually, as much as it sucks, it was Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Bill Clinton who started this, not Osama bin Laden. It was our government who got us into this mess. And then it was W. Bush and Obama and Trump who, well, especially Bush and Obama, Trump just stayed on autopilot as horrible as that was. He actually did increase things a bit. But 
um, especially Bush and Obama, exploited that violence and the American people's fears to get away with, as you say, just conflating all these people together. The brown people over there. Don't make me be any more vague than that. As we go, as Dick Cheney said about Iraq, well, you know, this is sort of kind of the geographical center of where that kind of stuff comes from. Yeah, right. Whatever you do, don't consult a map. Right. He's he's saying that because Iraq, the nation state, had nothing to do with Al Qaeda, nothing to do with Osama bin Laden, nothing to do with a war against the United States, had no vendetta against the United States. They're just another one of our victims from the last couple of wars and done anything to us. They weren't planning to do anything to us. And by saying, yeah, you know, sort of kind of the geographical center was what he meant was it's radical dissident factions in Saudi and Egypt who are targeting us because they hate us because we are too close of friends with their governments. We support the military dictatorship of Mubarak in Egypt and King Abdullah in Saudi. That's why they're after us. And they just, they're not going to ever tell the truth. And the American people, you know, this is the definition of the term blowback. You brought mm -hmm. up Ron Paul earlier. This was his famous fight with Rudy Giuliani. He said, and Giuliani, you take that back that they targeted us because we were bombing them first. And Ron Paul says, I'm sorry, CIA. He doesn't say, I'm sorry. He <laughs> goes, I believe CIA coined the phrase. And what it means is that there's consequences from your foreign policies. You have to fess up to that. And as Ron right. Paul said, if we ignore that, if we act like we can just go around the world doing whatever we want and, and think that we can get away with it with no consequences, then we do that at our own peril. And we see what happened when people before thought that they could do what they wanted without consequence. We lost 3000 people and it could have been a lot more. And so, you know, we've got to be adults about this. They don't hate us because Islam makes them hate freedom and Christianity and white people and the middle part of North America and primary elections and rated R movies and it never was that. And that they was hate always because they've seen bodies that, that we have created. That's right. I, look, America is the world empire. OK, right wingers, when they're criticizing it, conservatives call it, you know, when they're saying they don't like it, they say we don't want to be the policemen of the world. Well, what does that mean? What it really means if we're going to be. And, and it's funny because right wingers will get just as emotional as a little genderless college kid over this stuff. When you talk about this, it means that America inherited the British Empire after World War II, and we kept it. And we kept all of the European empires and the Japanese empire too. The Reds got the Soviet Union and China and North Korea, and we got the rest. And we've been the dominant force on the planet ever since then. And when the Soviet and Nixon and Kissinger made friends out of the Chinese 50 years ago, and the Soviet Union completely ceased to exist 30 years ago. And so now America is the unipolar power, the superpower, you know, number one. <laughs> right. What does all that mean? We're number one. It means we are the the U.S. government is the dominant military and political force over the entire planet Earth. Full spectrum dominance. That's what they call it. Or sometimes preeminence, predominance. Or even as Kagan and Crystal called it, benevolent global hegemony. America is the British Empire. America is what it was never supposed to be. And our government, by attempting to dominate the Middle East, 
stirred up this terrorist threat against us, first created them, funded them, built them up to use against our enemies, then turned them against us with policies that should have never been pursued, and then damned them. On September 11th, they pretended that that was the first day in history. Right. And that this wasn't Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Bill Clinton's fault. We have no idea why anyone attacked us. It must be because of our innocence. And the more innocent we are and the more decent we are to our moms, the more they want to kill us. And, you know, behead our sons and convert our daughters and wrap them in a burqa. They're coming for us. It's a with the vanguard of this Muslim invasion of our society had to hijack our own planes to use against us, right? They had no right. empire. There was no Islamic caliphate out there. The entire Islamic world's divided by nations. Right. You talk about almost entirely by secular dictators, the, the super majority of which are backed by the United States of America. You and talk so, about, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no I was going to say, you, 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 I heard you mention, I think it was on the Human Action Podcast, how uh, Osama bin Laden was doing all of this, you know, in in a in hiding, <laughs> you know, it, it, there, there was no there was there was there was no great um, you know French war. Co- I mean, there was no great empire coming against the U.S. with this. That's right. I, they didn't control a single county at the time of the attack. Bin Laden had a farm on the outskirts of Kandahar, right? One piece of property where he was a guest of the Taliban and allowed to stay. And he had his little lion's den hideout in the Tora Bora, you know, the White Mountains at Tora Bora in the Nangahar province there in eastern Afghanistan. That was it. They were in exile, quite literally, uh, on the far side of nowhere, a band of bandits, no more than 400 men. At that time, bin Laden was not trying to build a movement. He was trying to build a special forces cadre, basically, to carry out major ops behind lines. And so they weren't trying to build up any kind of, you know, massive juggernaut. See, and this is what I learned from William Norman Grigg, the very best John Bircher who ever lived. And by the way, who was gone from the Birchers for more than 10 years before he died. And he was my guy, my friend and, and my partner at the Libertarian Institute. Um, but back in the days when he was a Bircher, I learned this from him right after September 11th in 2001. Uh, in fact, I think I said this to Jeff Deist in that interview that um, I thought, you know, if bin Laden did do this and he thought he was fighting against the new world order, then he's crazy because all he did was just give him a giant excuse, a giant kick in the pants, a reason to go to Afghanistan, Iraq and wherever they want. Now, I remember thinking it that day. That right. they're going, I mean, I had already been predicting it for years at that time. Sorry, but it's true that they're going to go to Afghanistan and Iraq. And now here's their giant excuse. But then I read William Norman Grigg in the New American, and it must have been from either October or November 01, right? Just, you know, it was either the first issue, probably the second issue of the New American after 9-11. And he said in there, listen, with all asymmetric political actions, whether it's outright terrorism or, you know, something less, the action is in the reaction of the opposition, Right. You're talking about, again, 400 powerless men taking on a superpower. And I quote in the book, John Miller, who was an ABC News reporter who became an FBI agent later, but he interviewed bin Laden. And 
he later recounted the story that bin Laden said, that's why I'm declaring war on the United States of America. And in internally, he chuckled and scoffed and said, yeah, you and what army, pal? <laughs> but the joke is he only needed 20 men to crash four planes. See, and then the action is in the reaction of the opposition. And it's not that George W. Bush is so stupid that it somehow makes him innocent, right? That's not what it is. It's that George W. Bush is so cynical. It makes him guilty as hell. George, uh, what Bin Laden was doing was waving the red cape. And what George Bush was doing was deliberately playing the role of the bull, thinking that he's smart, but too clever by half as the saying goes. Right. Bin Laden said, I'm going to give these cynical Republican warmongering imperialists a great crisis for them to exploit. And so just, you know, the 9-11 truthers always thought that Al Qaeda worked for the United States. But if you want, you could be like me, a reverse 9-11 truther that the United States has been working for Osama bin Laden all this time, doing his dirty work, reading his stage directions off of his script for every bit of this. I'll tell you, there's this great article from uh, 2011 by Jeff Huber. It's called Osama bin Laden, dead and loving it. And it's about how this guy doesn't mind being dead. He's the greatest military commander in world history. He says, and Jeff Huber was so great. He says, um, he says, um, eat your heart out, Julius Caesar. Or no, no. Eat your heart out, Alexander. Et tu, Julius Caesar. And how do you like them apples, Charlemagne? Because here is the world's greatest military commander who has succeeded in getting the most powerful armies in the history of mankind bogged down in, what he says, dozens or something, scores of goat rope interventions um, you know, spinning, uh, spinning their wheels in the sand, wasting all their money, breaking all of their power and and him without even an army of his own to command. Here he's sitting in the attic, hiding even from his wife in Abbottabad, Pakistan. And yet he's got the Americans, the Israelis, the Saudis, the for that matter, the Iranians and everybody else playing the game of American Middle East politics over the terror war years at just the as the puppets on the end of his string and and getting everybody to act and react in ways that benefit the Al Qaeda movement this entire time. And as um, the former chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit put it, that if the American invasion of Afghanistan was all that Osama bin Laden ever wanted, and it was, then George Bush's invasion of Iraq is his unexpected but welcome gift to bin Laden beyond his wildest dreams. You're going to get rid of the secular socialist infidel Saddam Hussein, the guy with the French beret and the clean shaven chin, who is, you know, by definition a Sunni, but obviously only worships himself and uh, you know, is at that time, at least, was dominating the Shiite supermajority of Iraq uh, and, and you know, ready to unleash a civil war upon his death. OK, you know, don't throw me in the briar patch, whatever you do. 
and and so this is all that he ever wanted. And now look at what America did. America targeted secular Saddam Hussein, secular Abdullah Saleh in Yemen, secular Muammar Gaddafi, another self-worshipping atheist there, no religion at all in him. Right. And and the same again for Bashar al-Assad, right? Like if you're a Middle East dictator who we don't control and you do shave your chin every morning and wear a three-piece suit or at least, you know, Gaddafi's some golden robe or whatever, then we're coming after you. If you're the kind of guy that bin Laden would want to see dead, you're next. And by the way, look at where Trump left it and where we are with Biden right now, threatening the Ayatollah and still threatening Bashar al-Assad. Both men who bin Laden would want us to kill. Can you imagine wow. what it would what would happen for Al Qaeda? The benefit to Al Qaeda if America overthrew the Shiite dominated government in uh, the Shiite government of Iran and plunged Persia into sectarian war. I mean, man, talk about exactly what Ayman al Zawahiri still wants. Bin Laden's partner and the current leader of Al Qaeda hiding out there in Pakistan somewhere. This is what he wants is for America to continue doing exactly what we're doing, bankrupting ourselves, destabilizing the entire region, radicalizing the religion and the politics of everybody from Nigeria to the Philippines. That's all we keep doing. Just as, um, just as Jeff Huber said, Osama bin Laden wouldn't mind being dead. What would he care? This, this plan was never about him eventually becoming the king of Saudi Arabia or something like that. He was trying to kick off an era of permanent war. And this is exactly what he got. We're talking to Scott Horton, host of The Scott Horton Show. This is Mike Levitt, and, and Scott's also the author of the book, Enough Already. Um, and I mean, if you like this kind of firebrand and these kind of facts and, and passion, you got to read this book because it does. It reads a little breathless. It reads a little like you were just getting pounded. The fa- like you, it go, it goes into 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 facts and dates and people. It takes no prisoners approach to um, to what what is going on and 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 kind of unveiling what's what's happening on with this war on te- war on terror um, and. And how we've and how we've spent countless lives, treasure. I think I think that's the thing. Like like we we, we talk about um, um, these you know these king men, these people that are that are fighting for dominance one way or the other, and yet it's always the the, the soldiers, it's the guys in uniform that are that get screwed. It's the guys. Um, um, it's it's the, the 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 civilians. You know, we're exporting our our death in a way um, into the Middle East, um, which is you know, if you really think about it, is quite a quite a, a thing to do. Um, and and so I just I'd recommend people read this book. It is a great read, um, Scott. What what you mentioned why you wrote the book? You wanted to you wanted to have people like myself that are that want to understand what is actually happening and also have you know uncle bob to to read it and 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 understand it what um what how did you come about like like um what prompted you to write this i guess well you know i've had a lot of friends tell me i should be writing a book for a very long time and i never could really exactly narrow it down what i wanted to write about or, you know, exactly which aspect to focus on and this kind of thing. 
And then, <clears throat> pardon me, in about uh, 2015, probably, <clears throat> pardon me, let me take a drink here real quick. Sure. Um, I think it was about 2015, Tom Woods called me and said, hey, let's write a book together about the wars. It'll be a short little kind of war on terrorism for dummies. Here's each of the wars. Here's why they're all bad. What do you think about that? And I'm like, yes, done, sold. And I sent him an outline in like 45 minutes. Here's what we're going to do. And um, so then, but he's got a million billion obligations and all these things. And so he never really got around to writing it with me or, you know, having the time to let's sit down and do this kind of thing. So I figured, well, I'll go ahead and start. And then, you know, eventually he just has all of his other priorities and all this thing. So it just kind of became my own project. But at least he kind of had given me a kick to get going. And then what happened was, well, kind of like with all my explanations here in this interview, I overdid it. And chapter one, getting into this mess, uh, Jimmy Carter through Bill Clinton years, was about 50 pages. And then I thought, well, I don't know what, I'll have to go back and cut, but I guess I'll move on. And I started writing about Afghanistan. Right. And then that also quickly grew way out of control. And so instead of doing, you know, the war on terrorism kind of brief version of all the wars, it really ended up just, it became at some point, I think what happened was when I finished the section on torture, I was like, you know, that section alone is long enough because there's so many aspects of it that I just, I, it wasn't comprehensive at all, but I had to touch on the different aspects at least, you know, right. and the, but just that was such a long section that I thought that, you know, having that as one section in the Afghan chapter and the Afghan chapter is just one section, in this whole book, it's just not fitting. It's not working. I'm already way over the line here. I'm trying to figure out how to fit the rest of the wars in this thing. The book's going to be 600 pages. So I just said, forget it. And I wrote a book about Afghanistan. Chapter two, you know, went ahead and grew into the whole book about Afghanistan. Which is your fool's errand book. And then, so this book is the book that I was trying to write in the first place. Okay. And so um, I went back and I don't know if you really care, but the story is that um, Thaddeus Russell had me do a presentation for Renegade University in February of 2018. And um, so to prepare for it, what happened was I gave his assistant, a guy named AJ Von Slyke, who is just great. Um, I gave him my outline for the book that I was supposed to have written in the first place. And he took that outline and made it into a PowerPoint presentation. It was really great graphics and everything and looked really good. So then I did like the webinar, you know, they call it. It was a five and a half hour, it turned out, presentation about the entire war on terrorism. Wow. And so, hey, I just need some Dr. Peppers, man, and I'm good. So <laughs> right. um, we did that. And then this wonderful woman named Joanne, uh, my Australian friend, she transcribed the whole dang thing. And then I got to work on, you know, editing it and expanding it. And I did get delayed and distracted a few times. And then I started overdoing it again. I was trying to figure out what to do with Afghanistan. I just skipped it and I started writing Iraq War II. And then my Iraq War II chapter started growing out of control. And I was already like 30 pages into it and I hadn't even gotten to the war yet. And I'm like, oh, man, because there's so much about how the neocons lied us into war and all this stuff. 
So maybe not 30 pages, but anyway, I was quite a way into it. And I'm not even at the invasion yet. And I realize I'm doing it again. And yet there's already been a ton of books written about Iraq War II. And what I have to add to that is not much, right? I mean, I have my own synthesis of all those other things, my own, you know, take on what you really need to know about Iraq War II to understand how it fits in the rest of the tale. Um, and so I threw the whole thing out and started over again, again, and then, you know, went back to the transcript and just edited the hell out of it. And then in this book, unlike Fool's Aaron that has 1300 footnotes, the Afghanistan book, this book has no footnotes other than see my Afghanistan book and, you know, a couple of other very brief little details like, um, find the maps here and that kind of deal. Um, and, um, otherwise I did, you know, litter the, the text itself with as, you know, not as many sources as I possibly could, but, you know, hopefully if on the more controversial points, I hope that you'll be satisfied that I tell you in the text how I know this on the things that are the more difficult to believe. And especially when we get to later chapters in the book, like Libya and Syria, I'm essentially accusing Barack Obama and John Brennan and Hillary Clinton and David Petraeus and John Kerry and all of these men and Joe Biden, for that matter, of the highest treason against the United States and their support for Al Qaeda in uh, the fight against you know, their enemies, Israel's enemies, the Shiites. And uh, so when I do that, I know the burden is on me. Everybody knows that Bush screwed up Iraq War too, right? I'm just telling you how he did, right? right. But um, telling you the story about Libya and Syria, other than the people who know it, nobody knows this stuff, not the way I tell it. They've never heard this before. TV never told them before. I mean, they're, I'm not taking credit for this. I mean, there are, and I, and I, in the book, I have an entire paragraph of where I give credit to all the great journalists who told this story best. You know, I'm not claiming the credit for telling the story, but I'm saying that almost nobody knows what those great journalists revealed and I, about what I, was really going on there. And and it's it's pretty hard. There's been a couple of books. Max Blumenthal's book, The Management of, uh, of Savagery, has an excellent chapter on Syria. Just absolutely excellent stuff there. And there are, you know, others, others out there that kind of um, sum up the the um the work of others you know synthesize the work of others in a real productive way like that but they're pretty few and far between and so um but anyway i i hope that when people read the book that because of the lack of footnotes and citation numbers and things everywhere hopefully it's a much easier read and i'm told that it is a much easier read than fool's errand but at the same time i hope it's detailed enough that you can tell that these things are right and or at least detailed enough that You've got the keywords to Google right there if you want to check me. You know what I mean? That my, yeah. my claims are specific. They're not, oh, yeah, these guys were the bad guys and whatever without giving you enough to chew on. You know what I mean? So I, I hope that there's enough there for people to dig it or at least feel like they've been challenged and want to go and try to debunk it or whatever it is, you know? Absolutely. And as one who's who's in the middle of reading it, I, it is very re readable. I do appreciate your style. And it's 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 a great book and, and an important book, I think. I think it's a, it's something that, that people need to understand. If you want to understand what is really going on in the world, you, you can't understand it without knowing the things that are in this book. Um, I have two more questions for you. Um, well, thanks. And, and I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, no problem. I, I, the, the first one is um, what... Um, the first one is a lot of times we talk talk about like the the war effort, but we don't understand that 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 
that war effort that's happening is also a war on ourselves. In other words, the same tactics, the same um, surveillance, the same things, and we found this out with Snowden, the same things that, that they're doing abroad is happening to us. And I, I want you to address that a little bit. And my, my last question is what was maybe the, the thing that shocked you or the thing that you were surprised about when you were doing, when you were writing this book? Um, hmm. I'll do the last one first. Honestly, man, I find the entire thing shocking, but not surprising. And part of that is just because I've been at this for a very long time. So all the stuff in there is stuff that I learned on the way. And there's very little, I mean, not all of it, but almost all of it. So there's not much where, you know, going back and doing research for the book, I went, oh, wow, I didn't know that, other than very little things. Like the day that the State Department admitted that the al-Nusra front, that al-Nusra was just an alias for al-Qaeda in Iraq, which that was always a big deal to me. Look, everybody, the State Department admitted it. In December of 2012, they admitted it, that it's just al-Qaeda in Iraq, the bad guys from the last war, the same ones they're fighting on the side of now. And then, so this wasn't really surprising, right? It was just like a, a little bit of trivia that, oh, look, it's Victoria Newland's name is on the release. When I went back to check it, you know, and make sure the alias was the direct quote that I got right, which I was um, right about it. I hadn't right. noticed before. It was Robert Kagan's wife, the lady that did the coup in Ukraine in 2014, the lady that, that Joe Biden's sending back to Europe to pick a fight with Russia right now. She was the happened to be the lady. Robert Kagan's wife happened to be the lady who admitted wow. that, yeah, Al-Nusra is just al-Qaeda rock the bad guys from the other day the other side of the line they're still the bad guys on the other side of the line they're moderate oh, rebels in syria though it's okay um so there's just little stuff like that but i gotta tell you i mean when i reread the book it makes me angry as hell i mean i i still am just you know it, it ain't right what they've done you know and that, that's what the book is right this is the book of things that scott remembers that makes him mad you know so <laughs> Um, that's what, that's yeah. what's in there is the stuff that I just can't stand it. I just can't stand it. It doesn't have to be this way. It never had to be this way. And how in the world are we putting up with this still? Well, it does feel that way. It, fe it feels as you read the book that like you have, like you are going to burst and have to get this stuff out there that people have to know this because otherwise, otherwise it seems as if you feel, you know, you're a, um, uh, maybe a, to, to, think of a phrase a a, a a silent prophet like like you didn't say anything and now you, you're saying it you're you're at least getting it out there that's how it reads yeah well good i mean i hope it's like that again i really wrote it to be for everybody and i know in fact a friend of mine who is not very politically experienced but also is no dummy you know sort of kind of watches the news but doesn't take a significant interest in this stuff um i had her read it you know, back a few weeks ago before I put it out and asked like, Hey, so do I lose you on the Sunni Shia stuff? No, no, no. It's fine. I get it. You know? And so yeah. like, that's the yeah. kind of thing that I'm worried about is like, it's really important that you follow my narrative about, and, and just to break it down very simply. And, and this is what my dad always advised, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to tell you. It's in there. When Bush launched Iraq war two, it was a big, stupid mistake, even from his own point of view, from the empire's point of view, because the result was 
Not that the Iraqis ended up lording it over the Iranians and giving America even more influence throughout the Middle East like the neocons wanted, but in fact, they fought the whole war for Iran. And Iran has a thousand percent more influence with the government in Baghdad than America does, which is why after Bush won the war for the Shiite supermajority, they told him, thanks. Now, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out, pal. Beat it. And no, you can't have a single permanent base, right? That wasn't the plan. That was the result of their big stupid war for the friends of their enemies. But then they tried to fix it and said, OK, well, so now we have to tilt back toward the Sunnis. I mean, these are our friends anyway, the Saudi king and all their allies. But the Saudis don't have an army. They just have Al Qaeda. And so they went right back to the olden days of Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and back in these guys right there at the end of 2006 and seven. And then they really picked it up again with the advent of the Arab Spring in 2011 under Barack Obama. And Barack Obama essentially put the United States of America 100 percent at Saudi Arabia's service. I mean, I guess they were mad that we let um you know, uh, Mubarak get overthrown in Egypt. But so I guess after that, then Obama's done everything he could to try to serve the Saudis' interests and the Israelis' interests, which is support the terrorists, the butchers of New York City, the bin Ladenites, the guys who killed 4,000 or helped the Sunni insurgency kill 4,000 out of the 4,500 Americans who died in Iraq War II and took their side. Um, in, uh, especially in, um, Libya and in Syria. So that's why, even though it's crazy, it doesn't make sense in the term, in that sense, but it, it's understandable. Why did Obama take Al Qaeda's side in Syria? It's not because he's a secret Muslim from Kenya and all this stupid stuff. It's because right. he was continuing the policy that he inherited from Bush, which was recognizing, which Bush did still two years before he was out of power back in 06 that he had really screwed up and that and if people want to know at the core of of this and the change you got to read this excellent article by seymour hirsch i quote it at length in the book because i just could not bear to cut any more paragraphs out than i already did and it's called the redirection by seymour hirsch in the new yorker magazine from 2007 yep and to sum it up, oops, we are in the middle of winning a war for the Ayatollah's best friends. So now what we're going to do is we're going to tilt back towards Osama bin Laden. Wow. I'm telling you, man, that's what it's all about. And that's well, why Obama's policy does make sense in the literal, you know, term. Right. But, uh, you know, the fact but that it's still... It crazy and wrong yeah it was still understandable why he did what he did again we're talking to scott horton and and uh from the scott horton show author of the book uh enough already um scott my last question what how does this like you could i think there's i mean i think there are people that can be as cynical as can be and say you know what what happens over there as long as it's not happening to me and mine you know whatever. Um, but I, I think there is another aspect to this war on terror is, is it puts in the infrastructure for a war on the citizens of the United States. And, and right. that's yeah, my yeah, own I'm opinion. Sorry I didn't answer that part. That's okay. But here. I just wonder if you have an opinion on that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And that's the last chapter of the book is 
And that's the point. Again, uh, this is bad for us. Just like with the terrorists that we're fighting, it's murder-suicide. That's what it is. This is how to destroy a society. This is why the Birchers thought it was all a conspiracy, that it was all deliberate, you know, a plot to destroy America, the worst treason of all, was because from their conception, well, everybody knows that all empires kill themselves. So if we're embracing empire... Why would we do that unless it was always sneaky treason to, you know, an end run to get us, you know, a long con to bring us down the hard way, something like that. And the point is that they're half right. And that was what bin Laden was trying to uh, provoke us to do. And that was what um, the our governments have obliged them in around the world and here at home. And, you know, the irony is that bin Laden did want to see us lose our freedom. But it wasn't because he gave a damn that we had some. That wasn't it. He wasn't jealous of it nor in, in, uh, or, or resent it in any way. He thought we cared about it, possibly mistakenly, and thought that the American people, if given a choice between living in a security state to protect them from terrorism or living in a free society, where they don't meddle in the Middle East and bring terrorism about, that we would choose the latter policy. Since this is the middle part of North America and not the Middle East anyway, maybe we'll mind our own damn business and they'll stop attacking us and then we don't have to have a Department of Homeland Security at all. We don't have to have uh, FBI counterterrorism division. We don't have to have new Patriot Acts and new spy and new just completely illegal special access programs and covert programs of every description to spy on us. And the worst part of this of all, which is should be obvious to everyone, no matter what you look like or how much money you make or what religion you believe in or what part of town you live in, and we can see it all around the militarization of the police. And it started especially, of course, with the war on drugs, but it's absolutely run completely out of control with the advent of the war on terrorism, where every county sheriff has a huge incentive to pretend to believe that his county is in danger from bin Ladenite terrorists. And they therefore must all dress even their local deputy sheriffs on traffic duty in their full tactical pants and SWAT gear. And every deputy's got to have a fully automatic rifle or a, I guess maybe they just most of them carry uh, AR-15s, but still high powered rifles in all of their trunks, not just shotguns and 38s anymore. Right. Um, right. And they all. Um, you know, again, even on traffic duty where they're not wearing the full SWAT gear, they're wearing like the bottom layer of SWAT gear, right? They're still wearing their, you know, uh, their cargo pants or what, you know, their tactical combat fatigue type clothes instead of a blouse and slacks <laughs> like a public servant deputy sheriff's officer is supposed to be dressed, right? With a clip on tie, right? You know, we don't want anybody strangling right. our deputies, right? But they could be dressed like they have the slightest bit of respect for us, but they're not. They're dressed as soldiers. And even though they ought to know that this is ridiculous, this is pretend, we're just spending money and there's no enemies. I don't know what town you're from, Mike. I'm from Austin, Texas. Our crime rate is zero, okay? If 
if I went alone to the worst neighborhood in Austin, the most crime ridden neighborhood in Austin at three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night, I wouldn't get jumped. They would try to sell me drugs or girls, maybe. And maybe they wouldn't bother me at all. Okay. And I don't, that's, I'm not speaking for every town in America. Okay. I'm only talking about Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas is essentially paradise, right? The only people who die here are wives who get killed by their husbands and crap like that. There's no crime here. There's just no crime here. There's no gangs. Or if there's gang, you know, little Latin kings and whatever, just teenager crap. No real crime problem here. Yeah. And yet our cops are dressed as though they are at war with some segment of the population. But who? And then the answer is, of course, drug consumers, illegal drug consumers, mm -hmm. and particularly the poor ones, which, of course, are disproportionately then ethnic minorities. So now here we are 20 years into the terror war where our sheriffs and our city police train on military bases as special operations forces where every single police department in America has a SWAT team and an armored personnel carrier, MP5 machine guns and all their Kevlar helmets and all their equipment. And they got nothing to do except raid poor and usually black or brown, but also white, but poor drug users and not even necessarily drug dealers, but just like anybody who they think has the slightest bit of contraband and they get the wrong address all the time. They don't do their diligence and make sure that they're doing it right. They kill innocent people constantly. The average is something like two or three people a day. And that, my friend, is amazing because get this. There are 60,000 SWAT raids a year in this country now. Oh my! God. And those are almost all Afghan war style, you know, Delta Force, SEAL Team 6 style night raids on people's homes at 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the morning with their children present, flashbang grenades thrown, children, women and children and men terrorized out of their minds by essentially the American Gestapo. And they're doing what? Hunting for cocaine? Let me tell you something. Every judge in your state is a cokehead. I used to be a cab driver. You know, there's the only person who ever snorted cocaine in my cab? A judge. Oh, and his <laughs> prosecutor friend. Right. And there was one time a poor person tried to smoke some cocaine in the back of my cab, and I didn't let him do that. Yeah. But it's rich country club Republicans are the only ones who can afford cocaine in the first place, man. Right. And they're not the ones getting raided. It's the on the margin. It's poor people daring to yeah. consume this stuff. And so then what's the result of that? It's not just innocent men and women and their families and their lives, their communities, their extended families, their churches, their businesses, their lives destroyed. It's not just that. But now look around you now, the approximately 13 percent of the population of our country that are black who might have been under the, the impression, I think correctly, although maybe I'm not the best one to say, that things were getting better in terms of race relations in this country in many ways have now had cause to feel, and never mind the politics of Barack Obama and Donald Trump, but mm -hmm. just from the drug war itself and, and their interactions with local police, they have cause to believe that the white supermajority of America just doesn't give a damn about them. And if cops kick in their doors and shoot their wives to death, 
well, whatever. What are we supposed to do? Prioritize that over some pronoun argument or some crap or tennis match or whatever it is that they think that we care about instead of them. Right. And it sucks, man. They're being treated unfairly and they're right that by and large, nobody else cares. Yep. It's by and large. Look, the poor are not the majority of the country, never mind race. The poor are, I don't know what percent hell, especially now with the COVID lockdown and everything, but the poor are quite a bit less than half the population, right? Right, right. Five, 10, 20% of people, you know, probably only 5% of people are really hungry in this country. And they're you know, voiceless. Like they have no, yeah. right. So people just can't relate. People just can't relate. That's happening to someone else, except it's happening to millions of people, right? Even if it's not on your side of town. And this is all George Bush's fault because George Bush created the militarization of the police. Well, really, he quadrupled whatever Clinton already had going on, really, with the 1033 program and then the Department of Homeland Security program to turn every American sheriff's department into a paramilitary right wing death squad. And that's why you read and just go on Facebook and look at some guy calls the cops because his neighbor's stereo is too loud. The cops show up and kill him. Somebody calls the cops because the guy in the house next door, he keeps starting his car and turning it off. I'm not sure why. This is just four weeks ago. The cops show up and shoot the guy to death. Wow. And this happens every day. Subscribe to the Free Thought Project. That's the site. They kicked him off of Google, pretty much kicked him off of Facebook and Twitter. But it's the great Matt Agarist. He's a great journalist. And every single day, cops kill our fellow citizens. Every single day. And there's no accountability for it. And then that's then the cause of all the hatred and resentment. And it's not the case, by the way, for any black people listening just because somebody's white doesn't mean we have any political power and could do anything for you, man. Even if we want to, it's a very select few who are in charge of this system. But it is true, though. And it seems they profit by from and large. It. Americans insisted that we end drug prohibition, not just pot, but cocaine and heroin and LSD and everything too. the same way we just threw in the towel on alcohol prohibition. Then this would be over. That's and right. the trauma that these people are going through, having their husbands and their fathers taken away from them, locked in cages like animals over contraband offenses, contraband offenses will be over and, and things could become less worse. And the fact and you know what, man, it was 32 years ago. OK, it was in 1989 that when Bill Hicks, uh, not that. When Bill Hicks did Sane Man at the Laugh Stop here in Austin and said, why do we have a drug czar? And if we have a drug czar, why is he a cop? Why isn't he a guy who's a recovering addict who knows what it takes to help other people who are recovering addicts? Sick people don't get healed in jail. This is a stand up comedian going He's like down on his knees begging the audience. You see, it makes no sense. And so we just have to evolve the idea. And then the great punchline, then something like heaven might dawn. Right. If we would just begin. Right. Respect for each other, you know. Oh, man. Again, this is uh, Mike Levitt with And If Love Remains. We're talking to Scott Horton. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. This has been 
everything I hoped for you. I'm really grateful to get your message out to my audience. He's the author of Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. He's the host of the Scott Horton Show, um, director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com. Scott, how if, if people are listening and they other than than purchasing your book, how what's the best way that they can support you if they like what they're hearing? Sure. Well, the number one most important thing is subscribe to the show. I've done 5,000 interviews. I'm keeping them coming right now. I'm so swamped with the book. I admit that they're only coming out at, you know, one and two a week right now. But typically speaking, I have between five and 10 interviews a week on every aspect of foreign policy. And I'm already friends with all the best journalists in the world. So I can get them on the show to talk about every important thing. And so subscribe to the podcast. It's, um, they're also all available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton show. But if you go, um, the entire archive is there and also at scotthorton.org. And then my institute, and, and you can also, by the way, you can subscribe since he asked, uh, you can subscribe yeah. um, as a donor by PayPal or Patreon. And anybody who signs up for $5 or more a month, you get the keys to the private Reddit group that I keep. I got a good couple of hundred guys in there and hang out and talk about stuff. And right uh, so there's that. And then um, the director of the Libertarian Institute, and that's the legendary Sheldon Richmond and the great uh, Pete Quinones and uh, the heroic Kyle Anzalone, who also works for antiwar.com as well. And we've got a great host of podcasters and writers and everything there. And, and we're putting out great books all the time, not just mine, but others. And all that is available at uh, libertarianinstitute.org. And we are a 501c3. So any support that you give us uh, can quite legally be written off on your taxes. So it's either give it to the war party or give it to the people who are fighting for you. Amen. Right on. And then I guess that's it. Listen to me on Sunday mornings in Los Angeles on 90.7 FM and, and read the book. I really hope everybody likes the book. And if you do, give it away, man. See if you can get somebody else to pay attention. Love it. Thank you, Scott. I, and I feel like we're just breaking the surface on this, but I appreciate the time you've given so much, um, so much information and, and passion. I love it. Um, hope to have you again sometime. Anytime, man. Happy to do it. Thank you. Right on. This is Mike Lovett. This is And If Love Remains.